This is the Robot Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Robot Podcast. Today we've got uh, one big story uh, that we're going to talk about, and actually I'm going to attribute this to Jerry Kaplan, because uh, that story is based highly off of an article that he wrote in the MIT Technology Review about uh, AI's PR problem. That is the name of the article. And I, I want to go in-depth into some of the stuff that he said, because it's a very good article about what kind of issues we're having in the AI world about the public perception of what AI can do and what it's going to do. But before we do that, just a few quick updates on uh, just the robot world in general. Uh, the biggest one that I was excited about over the last two weeks that came out is actually the, the Flippy Burger robot, which is actually a universal robot uh, robot arm that is has a special gripper on it for grabbing hamburgers and then turning them over. And then they've basically got a webcam or camera up above a grill that determines when a camera is or when a hamburger is cooked and is then ready to be flipped over so that this robot can do basic menial tasks inside of a commercial kitchen or a restaurant kitchen where it can prepare hamburgers and get them ready. This is totally to be expected because the fast food world and the food world in general is moving very heavily towards robots. There's a bunch of startups working to create robots that can cook things. Flipping burgers is a really easy thing to do. The demo that they use or have shown so far, as I said before, is basically a universal robotics robot arm that they put a gripper on the end of. They're going to build their own arm to go along with this, so it's a single unit that you move into the kitchen and set in front of a grill. Um, but it, it's simple to do. What they're doing is creating a very task-specific robot. They're not creating any really special hardware, or at least they don't need to create any kind of special hardware. They're just creating a very specific use case piece of software so that almost any robot arm would be able to do these jobs. And in the fast food space, people are going to be replaced to a certain extent with this. The robot is limited in that it does not grab raw hamburgers and place them on the grill. From the demo video, all the a human worker is there kind of keeping track of it, making sure that it's doing what it needs to get done, and then placing new burgers on the grill. All this robot does is flip them over which is kind of dangerous in the long term because creating a grill that would flip burgers is not a terribly difficult thing to do uh, technologically. But what uh, Miso Robotics is doing, that's the name of the company, Miso Robotics, they want to create multiple different robots for like cooking the fries, cooking the burgers, all these things, so that they can get kind of a, a multi-use platform in place inside of restaurants so that they can actually have robots doing multiple many of the tasks inside of a general restaurant. So that, that was interesting because that's one of the, the first really good demos that I've seen that didn't have something quirky about it. It's just a robot they trained to turn over burgers, which should have happened a long time ago. So I'm glad that someone is doing it. Uh, next, uh, Georgia Tech. This is kind of just in kind of uh, robotics user interface world. Georgia Tech has been heading up a lot of the UI capabilities for robots in the uh, last few years. They figured out how to use laser pointers to have a robot go and grab something. Uh, they've been working more recently with what's called point and click uh, positioning or direction, 
where if you have a robot that's maybe working in a warehouse and it's picking parts off the shelves and then at some point it gets stuck, ideally some human worker can telecommute into that robot and show the robot how it needs to grab the thing and help it grab the thing so that it can keep on going on with its work. And we talked about this last week with how robots and humans will interact in the future. But uh, Georgia Tech, traditionally what they had done before was they would have a basically augmented reality view of a robot arm, and then they would move that augmented reality version of the arm into position by using a three-degree, three-axis system that they drag around and they rotate the gripper and they move it up close to something so that it can grab it, and then they say go and see if it works. Well, now that that's difficult, tough, and time-consuming because you got to move the axes around a lot. But what they've done is created it so that you have a single view from some webcam over the space or the robot's point of view. And then you just click on the object in the frame that you want. In their specific example, you have a top view of a desk with the robot arm there. And you can click on the pin and the robot arm will determine its own positioning and angles and everything else to go and grab the object in that location that you clicked on which is great because this has been needing done for a long time and it will be very useful as robots are implemented in more areas where complex manipulation is needed, but the software hasn't quite kept up and humans need to still be babysitters, basically. And then the last thing, uh, this this was kind of just interesting and it came up while we were going through some uh, research today. Uh, The Curie robot, which is a social robot that came out at CES, it's a short little a robot with a little round head and it's got mechanical eyes that blink and stare at you and everything else. Uh, We realized here while we were going through our research that the Curie robot looks an awful lot like the Papyro, which is a Japanese basically social robot that has been around for uh, eight, maybe even 10 years by now. Um, But the Papyro is a Papyro. I don't, I'm not sure how to pronounce that correctly. (laughs) Um, But it's a short, very small robot, probably less than a foot and a half tall. It's got a round head, too, two front drive wheels. It looks like it's some kind of little critter that's sitting down and has two little feet out in front of it. Maybe like a a rabbit with no ears. That might be the best way to describe it. Um, But Curie has basically the same architecture, same kind of motions and everything else. And this is interesting um, because it's not because Curie was stealing the design of the paper row at all. Um, That's not what we're trying to say, but the fact that so many of these robots are being pigeonholed into certain design characteristics based on what they're doing. Um, And IEEE actually had an article talking about why all social robots look alike anymore. And they go through all the details of why these robots are starting to kind of mesh together and how they appear. The, The design standards, when you have an industrial designer come in to design your robot to be nice around humans... There's basic rules and common themes that they all work off of when they're designing these things. So if you see, you're seeing a lot of robots that look pretty identical, chances are they are because the same rules are being applied to all of them. Guys went to the same school who are designing them. So just an interesting side effect there. It's also kind of an indication of saturation, I would say, in the market. If all of them are starting to blend together and look the same, it means a bunch of people are having the same ideas And then when they go to design it, they run into the exact same problems. And since none of them have any comparison to everybody else, uh, they're all creating the same thing kind of simultaneously. So we'll see which one has the better business execution so that they're attributed to have the design. It's kind of like the the 
idea of everybody designed a smartphone and everybody knew the idea for smartphones, but then Apple was the one who really pushed it into a commonplace device. So everyone attributes the design of the smartphone to Apple, even though it had many subsidiaries before that or many previous generations. Okay, now on to the main story. Uh, the story, like I said before, um, is based off of a post by Jerry Kaplan um, in MIT Technology Review. And literally what we're doing with the show today is just kind of going through this article that he wrote um, and delving a little bit deeper than even he did. He did a good kind of high-level view of it, but we'd like to discuss some of the parts a little bit more. Um, Jerry Kaplan, if you don't know, he's kind of a serial entrepreneur, basically. Yeah, we'll call him that. that that's fair. Uh, he is actually one of the founders of Go Computing. And if you're not familiar with Go, it was one of the most highly funded startups in the 1980s. They kind of pioneered a lot of the concepts in pen computing and touch computing. They ended up uh, sort of getting ripped off by uh, Microsoft and Apple for the Newton and other devices um, instead of being invested in by them. And it, 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 Jerry Kaplan wrote a book about this where he details everything that went down. But anyway, Jerry Kaplan is actually a computer scientist. He has a PhD in computer science. Um, before that, in his bachelor degree, he was actually a uh, science and philosophy, I believe. And then he went on into computer science. So he's very uniquely positioned for talking about AI because he gets the, the, the social ramifications of all of this. But uh, what he called the article was AI's PR problem. And he starts out with a little bit of background, uh, kind of the, the overall fear that the world has right now of AI. And we've talked about this on the show, too, in that AI has been painted so badly by general media. People take a Boston Dynamics robot, which is basically just an RC car that has legs, and they say, oh, it's Terminator. And you're referencing Terminator because every single media representation of robots in any kind of a story is negative. Back to the very first time the word robot was even used in RUR, the play RUR in 1920, I want to say, those robots uprose and killed their masters. So that concept has been around forever, and it's a real big problem because everybody immediately thinks about, okay, that's a great, cool, cute robot. How's it going to kill me in my sleep? And this is terrible. And it's gotten to such a point, uh, and it, it's a fear that is actively working inside of legal systems. Uh, Jerry Kaplan talked about how the Committee of Legal Affairs of the European Parliament uh, issued a report recently that said that the EU is going to require registration of intelligent robots. We understand why they're doing this, because uh, they want to know where the intelligent robots is. The problem is, we do not have a definition of intelligence. Define intelligence for me right now. Now define, is your Roomba intelligent? Is your RC car intelligent? Are you intelligent? This is such a gray area, such a continuum. There is no way to measure intelligence. And, and Kaplan goes into this a little bit more in the article, and we'll talk about it. But that's just, it's kind of a ridiculous request because we do not understand intelligence enough to be have, have a requirement to register an intelligent robot. Because that's basically, we're going to have to register every robot ever, so we have an idea of where they are. And then, of course, there's a Stop Killer Robots movement, which is kind of a, an academic um, group that's trying to keep autonomous weapons from being used in war, which is semi-legitimate, because they are 
almost equivalent to the concept of the nuclear bomb as far as waging war goes. And we've talked about this in the past, too. Um, let's see here. But uh, what Kaplan really wants to kind of bring home is that we, we don't no have a grand unified theory of intelligence. So therefore, measuring it or even determining if we're getting close to AI is really difficult. If you uh, look back at like what when Einstein, Einstein created the, the theory, the fundamental concept for things that would work in the atomic bomb before we had the technology to create the atomic bomb. I mean, you could measure the success of an atomic bomb just by using E equals MC squared. That was the standard. That's perfect energy conversion. So that when you build the bomb, you can say, okay, this is a really good bomb, or this is a really bad bomb, or this is a really good reactor, this is a really bad reactor, because they have the fundamental theory to measure it against. We don't have an E equals MC squared for intelligence. We're not even close. So that's a real issue here when we're talking about robotics, because we don't know if we're getting close at all. <clears throat> um, let's see here. So, but the problem is that people keep on anthropomorphizing robots to such a degree, and, and artificial intelligence in general, they're making it seem to be more than it is. They're mistaking achievement for intelligence. If you look at like uh, Google's DeepMind that was one at Go last year, that was a very neat accomplishment, but it's just a machine that achieved a task. It wasn't so much intelligence. It was a well-executed mechanism that uses semi-intelligent constructs in it in the, in the form of machine learning and everything else. But that's not to be mistaken for intelligence. <laughs> Excuse me. So, what Kaplan tries to say in this article is that we should not make the mistake of viewing these machines as intelligent before we have some way of knowing if they're intelligent. Now, a few of you might get up in arms about that because, oh no, they're going to take over us before we get it done. But he makes the point of right now, all of these things that are, are blown up in the media, of like Go, DeepMind winning at Go, or Watson winning at Jeopardy, or robots learning how to grab things, each one of those things is always expounded on into all of these robots are going to become intelligent. Kaplan makes the point that each one of these is a very separate achievement. We're not, they're not building on each other so much. They're building on previous work, of course, but each one of these is a very separate and disparate component of AI research in general, which means that they don't all combine all of a sudden into Terminator because they are so separate and they use different methods and everything else. Now, again, that could almost be kind of considered naive in that, yeah, you, a mouse and a computer are two separate mechanisms too, but they come together to create a very cohesive UI. So too could separate learning methods come together into a dangerous robot. Now, you guys all know that I am not a fan of the robot uprising at all. I hate that concept or whenever it's automatically thrown out there by media in general. But it's always a concern. It is certainly a concern. And if you just want to extend it to an extreme, at some point, machines will become human-level intelligent. It doesn't matter. 
whether it happens today, 10 years from now, or 100 years from now, at some point it will happen. So it's something to prepare for and be cognizant of, but it's not quite something to be scared of. You should, you should be, well, you should be in fear of it <laughs> the same way you should be in fear of any kind of new technology because it can bring negative ramifications. But that does not mean be scared of it. A, a healthy dose of fear keeps you from cutting your finger off when you use a table saw. But that doesn't mean you don't use a table saw. For those of you who don't know, a table saw is a woodworking tool. I hope that wasn't too bad of a too distant of a metaphor there. Um, Kaplan goes into a, a lot, a little bit more of this, but those are kind of the main points of like AI is still very disparate, um, and we're blowing it up to be something greater than it actually is right now. Um, though he doesn't, he doesn't say this explicitly. This is me coming in. He, we should be preparing for this kind of stuff and paying attention, like. Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking, all those guys say that we should be doing. We should be aware of it. But policing and controlling and measuring progress in AI is difficult to impossible because we don't know what intelligence is. And that's a problem because we don't really know what we're building. It's it's almost a Jurassic Park sort of situation where we're creating all this great technology, but we don't really know what it will do. Um, that's me again coming in. That's not Kaplan stuff. Um, Kaplan did bring up a couple of other kind of semantic, semantic things that I like. He says that AI was probably a bad term to use back in the beginning, um, because it was used to describe computers working semi, um, biologically to achieve some task using their methods. Whereas he, the word he said would be better would be if we uh, called it anthropic computing. I think, yes, he used the word anthropic computing as opposed to artificial intelligence. That makes it much, anthropic computing sounds much less interesting and much less threatening than artificial intelligence because it keeps the, the humanizing of the machines down to a minimum. Artificial intelligence, we're like, oh, human intelligence, artificial intelligence. Yes, they're the same. They're going to compete with us. Whereas... Human intelligence, anthropic computing, yes, they're the same. And no, <laughs> different things, who cares? Um, so, yeah, really the sum up of the article was the fact that people just are taking machines and comparing them to humans and therefore extending the abilities of the machines farther than they should be at this point. Which is perfectly fair because somebody finds out that a robot won at chess or a computer won at chess and they immediately assume, oh, the robot's as smart as a human because it won at chess and beat a human at chess, which is not what it means at all. It just means that we created a mechanism that can perform the specific task and it uses its own special mechanisms that might seem to emulate something human, but they're really not. Alrighty then, guys. We're going to cut off the show right there. I do have one last fairly large announcement. Actually, this is a really big announcement for the, the podcast in general. Uh, we are probably going to be changing the podcast from a pure podcast to more of a YouTube channel. Uh, we're going to be launching the YouTube channel here in a couple of weeks. Um, and what we'll probably end up doing is just 
doing the YouTube videos and then taking that audio and posting it here on the podcast, which is a little bit disingenuous to you guys with the podcast, but we don't have the manpower to record a podcast and cut edit a YouTube video. Um, so what, and the YouTube videos are better for what we're trying to do because whenever we talk about these new robots coming out and the demo videos and how they look, describing them over audio is not that great of a methodology of doing it where we could just pop up some video on the screen or a picture of someone and have some cool graphics and we can much more clearly communicate these things. We've also noticed the need that media about AI and robotics in general is very limited and it's being carried out by people who are not, um, do not have a technical background. They are journalists who are interested in robotics. And I have absolutely no problem with that because many of them do great work, but many of them do not. And they don't have a context of what they're talking about from a technological standpoint. So we would really like to get a news channel out there about AI and robotics where we have at least a little bit more of an understanding about it. And YouTube's a great platform for that too because then you guys can comment on stuff. It will be tougher for interviews because the YouTube videos for interviews will most likely still basically be audio with the host sitting there listening to the audio, which again is not great, but we'll work with what we got. So the big main announcement is that we're going to be moving over to YouTube uh, we're not quite sure what the YouTube show is going to be called yet. We'll let you know about that. It will probably be called The Robot Show because that's how original we are. We've got The Robot Podcast, and then we'll just turn it into The Robot Show up on YouTube. So thanks, everybody. Uh, talk to you next week. Follow The Ro Robot Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have suggestions for topics on the show or people you'd like us to talk to, let us know. The Robot Podcast is on Stitcher and iTunes, so you should be able to listen to it with any device that you have. Tune in every Friday for new episodes.